we one has to be careful about taking the idea of integration too far I mean we don't need to blur it all together but essentially we use meditation and Buddhism in order to solve the problem of suffering so inwardly we solve the problem of suffering and then when so-called outer problems or social problems arise we deal with them in the best possible way without turning that into dukkha so any so-called outer problem is not made into dukkha the ways of solving dukkha that are used by ordinary people householders and so on have to be in line with the principle of nature and then the religious or spiritual methods of solving dukkha must also be in line with the principles of nature and so if these are all in line with the law of nature then they will eventually come together further we'd like to say that if even if you took all the methods of all the different religions and brought them together it still wouldn't go beyond or escape from the need of being in line with nature although some may, religions may not speak in terms of nature still all their ways of dealing with dukkha must be in line with nature and the the essential quality the essence of God is the law of nature would you agree that even for someone practicing anapanasati some basic outside needs have to be attained like a sort of framework in order to get peace of mind apart from shelter food spirituality right livelihood was mentioned as you said yesterday the feeling that one's life is useful in our societies this kind of occupation is so difficult to find how can we get rid of this dukkha being slaves in jobs that consume all our energy uselessly only to earn our living whether ordinary worldly life or spiritual practice such as anapanasati are the basic foundation of life must be in order this this the buddha didn't speak so much about because it was fairly obvious completely ordinary that if you do anything it has to be on a firm foundation and so then one has to get this foundation of one's life in order one's livelihood basic physical needs and so on have to be taken care of and the the way to understand this is not as merely chasing after money 
which is the prevailing attitude in the world, or just accumulating material goods. But to approach one's work as duty, instead of doing it merely for the reward, approach it as duty. Then if we have this proper attitude, it's not so difficult to get our livelihood in order. And then that will be a foundation for both our ordinary worldly activities as well as for spiritual practice. When we ordain as monks or nuns, we take on a way of life in which many of these things are taken care of quite well. But for those of us who do not ordain, we still need to adjust our the way we depend on material things, the way we make use of our material needs and our means of earning a livelihood. We must adjust these until they are appropriate according to the principles of nature. Now if ordinary people, meaning those who aren't monks and nuns, have practiced spiritually, have developed better mindfulness, have more samadhi, have a, this will help them greatly in dealing with the basic needs of life. It's accepted that people who are living in the world have to have jobs. They have to earn a living. And so, but if they bring mindfulness and a calm, clear mind to that, then they can adjust things much more readily. The more understanding there is, the more ready wisdom, then these adjustments will take care of themselves. The person who is seriously developing spiritually will find that these things um, tend to take care of themselves because one is living with mindfulness, a calm, clear mind, and wisdom. We have a phrase that might be new for you. It's called ordaining at home, or the actual Pali word for ordain is papacha, which means to to go out from, which usually means to leave home. So we could say it, leave home while at home. If you can do this, this will take care of many of your problems. To although one doesn't officially become a monk or a nun, one practices in essentially the same way, even while living at home. If you understand this principle, this that will take care of many of your difficulties. The heart of leaving home and ordaining is to not let the concept of me or mine to enter into the mind. Being careful to not let me and mine take over the mind, this is the heart of ordaining. And so if one practices this at home, then one is leaving home while at home.
even if one has physically left home and has put on robes and is living in the monastery, if the mind is full of self, then you can't consider that to be really leaving home and ordaining. Could one say that Buddhism is an atheist religion? This thing about atheism is something perpetrated by Western thinkers, scholars, and so on. Looking at other religions from their own perspective, Western, Western people have divided them into two categories, theist and atheist. But this is done based on their own definition of what God is, which is very narrow. It's generally based on the, solely on the Christian idea of, of God. And then on this very narrow basis, they go and judge other religions as being theist or atheist. This is an approach we cannot agree with. If we look at it from the perspective of Buddhists, we could say that in Buddhism there is also a God. But this is to understand or define God differently than the narrow Western way. For the Buddhist, the law of nature is the God. The difference here is that this is an impersonal God or non-personal God. The usual Western idea of God is a personal God, an anthropomorphic figure, a father. In Buddhism, the Buddhist God is not like that at all. It's the law of nature. It's interesting that in Thai, the word for law is Goat, goat, which is very close to God, or Thais pronounce it God. So we're, this coincidence is quite interesting. In the West you have God. In the, in Buddhism there is goat, or the law of nature. There is a supreme, absolute law of nature. This is the most powerful God that there is. There's a, a story, a historical story that has to do with this. In Indonesia, soon after independence, it was decided that to subsidize religion under the, with the belief that a good Indonesian citizen would would have a religion. But, and there were many Buddhists in Indonesia who had been Buddhists for centuries. And the government considered, however, that the Buddhists had no religion because they were atheists in the government's understanding. That the Buddhists, because they didn't have a god, they didn't have a religion. And so the Buddhists were not given any subsidy, unlike the other religions. To deal with this injustice, some of the Indonesian Buddhists 
use the very point we've just made, that in Buddhism there is an impersonal God, that Buddhism is as much a religion as any other, but that the God is impersonal. And so they were eventually given their subsidy. So there are two kinds of God. There's the personal God and the impersonal God. You can decide for yourself which is more awesome, which is more terrible. In my opinion, death is the final quenching of the body-mind. There is a nothingness, and nibbana, as you would call it. Is this also the Buddhist view, or is there anything else to say about it? The understanding here is not expressed in this question, is not correctly Buddhist. To speak of some nothingness is not actually a Buddhist way of speaking. However, if you like to use this word, then it must be understood correctly. To say that there is absolutely nothing is, is false. There's, it's just not true. What the Buddhist would say is that one is quenched in, you can say that there is no self, there is nothing which is self. If you like the term nothingness, the proper understanding of it is the fact that there is nothing which is self, nothing which is me or mine. That's, that would be a kind of Buddhist nothingness. However, Buddhists don't use this term. Buddhists prefer the term voidness. Because when people hear nothingness, they immediately think that there's nothing at all. It becomes nihilism, which is not the Buddhist perspective. We prefer the term voidness, that things exist, all things exist, but all those things are void of self, are void and empty of me and mine. They exist, but their existence is void of self. This is a better term to use than nothingness. Nothingness can be easily misunderstood. It's very ambiguous. So, and one doesn't have to die. One doesn't have to die to realize or to enter voidness or to be voidness, or if you prefer nothingness. There's no need to die just when there is no more self then that is voidness. And so you could say, but then you can say when there is no self, then it's the same as if there was nothing. And this is where things are a bit ambiguous. If there's, when there's no more self, then it's like there was nothing. But you have to understand this properly, not in a material way one can be quenched without having to die. The kind of quenching that comes at death or after death, what good is that? If you have to die to be quenched, that has absolutely no benefit for life. One ought to be much more interested in the quenching while still alive. Life, we can say that life is quenched 
of all heat, of all dukkha, when one stops attaching to things as being me. When there's no more attachment to anything is me, that is the quenching that is most interesting because one is, is still alive. The problem here, as in many cases, is that language is ambiguous and we, we tend to interpret terms incorrectly, generally rather materially. So with the term nothing or nothingness, there's a material meaning and a spiritual meaning. The material interpretation means of nothingness is there's nothing, just some state of absolute nothing. There's nothing existing. But spiritually the term means that there's everything. All things exist, but none of those things are self. None of them are taken to be me. So when there's this spiritual nothingness, or when nothing is attached to as me, it's like there was nothing. But we need to understand these words correctly. To keep things clear, it's helpful to use the Pali language. In Pali there is the word atta, which means self. It's to insist that things are self, that everything is a self. The other extreme is nirata, nirata, which means absolutely nothing, which is, it means basically nothingness, that there isn't anything at all. One extreme is there are things and things are self, and the other extreme is there's nothing at all. But in the middle is Buddhism, which is anatta, anatta, which means not self. Things exist, there are things, but they are not self. All things exist and that existence is not self. So if you understand these three terms, you'll, you'll understand the Buddhist perspective. The one, on one side is the belief there are things and things are self, that they have some permanent essential identity or something. And on the other hand is that things is the view that there's nothing at all. The Buddhist perspective is in the middle, that there is existence, but that existence is not self. The non-existence only applies to self. To use more ordinary words, we can say one extreme is being being or existence. The other extreme is non-being or non-existence. And then the Buddhist perspective is being but not self or existence but not self. That existence, that being is not self. Please remember these words correctly. It's not self, not no self. Not self is the proper translation. I would like to hear the Buddhist view on how the universe was created.
when you speak about reincarnation or rebirth, first you have to be clear which which perspective are you talking about, which religion or which school understanding are you speaking of. Many religious, many religions and sects speak of reincarnation in rebirth in terms that are too physical, which are overly materialist, materialist, meaning that the body dies, okay, there's a, 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 a living body and it dies, and you stick it in a coffin, and then something goes and gets reborn in another body, and that body dies and you put it in the coffin and then something goes and gets reborn in yet another body. So in some teachings, reincarnation, rebirth is a very physical matter about the birth and death in physical bodies. But if you are interested in the Buddhist understanding of this, it goes much deeper. It's not so concerned with the material thing, but it goes more deeply. And that seeing whenever in the mind ego is born or selfishness is born, whenever there is the thought in the mind, I am, this this is birth in the Buddhist understanding. We explained this the other day when talking about dependent origination. In every cycle of dependent origination there is a birth. Every time the cycle of dependent origination goes around there is a, a birth. This means the birth of the ego within the mind. Instead of a physical birth, it's a spiritual birth. Those physical births and deaths, that doesn't happen so often. It's not a big deal. But this spiritual birth is happening over and over again each day. This is where the, this is the important issue, this birth of ego right here and now. The other one doesn't happen so much. To be physically born is not considered a problem. Buddhism does not consider to be physically alive to be the problem. Some people think that just physical life, that's the problem and so the answer is to die. But in Buddhism, the problem or the suffering is seen to come from this spiritual birth of, of ego. So one has to be clear whether one's talking about rebirth in a Buddhist sense or in a Hindu sense or whatever. Now, karma, the Buddha made it very clear that karma or that the happiness and the dukkha we experience now has nothing to do with the actions in past lives. The Buddha actually said this, that the happiness and dukkha we experience now is not dependent on 
actions in past lives. Rather, the Buddha taught the karma that is now. If we, if we act correctly according to dependent origination, then there's no dukkha. If we act incorrectly towards dependent origination, then there is dukkha. If we act incorrectly, then through ignorance, ego is born and there is dukkha. If we wisely understand dependent origination, then ego isn't born or reborn or reincarnated and there's no, no dukkha. So these are Buddha's perspectives on rebirth and on karma. One needs to distinguish them from other perspectives, say, the way many Hindus speak about reincarnation as some self that takes a body, that body dies, the self goes to another body, and this goes on endlessly. And then the problem for Hindus is how to keep the self from getting reborn into bodies. But in Buddhism, the problem isn't the body, it's the self. Suppose that there is old karma. Suppose that there is. Nonetheless, one can control it by acting correctly right now according to the law of nature, according to dependent origination. If we understand and practice correctly according to this law, then old karma is nullified and there's just what's happening now. If one acts incorrectly according to the law of nature, then there will be dukkha. So the problem is not old karma, it's what we do right now, especially what the mind is doing. And that, whether it's right or wrong, depends on how it acts, how it relates to dependent origination. If, if there is birth, there is dukkha. If there's no birth, there's no dukkha. Non-birth is, means no dukkha. Now here, non-birth doesn't mean death. Non-birth just means ego isn't born. The me isn't concocted. When there's this non-birth, then there's no dying either. Non-birthing and non-dying. This is where all problems end. As long, there is still there, as long as there is still being born, there will always be dying. And as long as there is this spinning around of birthing and dying, then there will always be dukkha. But when there's no birth, non-birth, when the self doesn't get born, there's nothing to die, there's non-dying. And this non-birth, birthing and non-dying, this is where everything is fine, where there are no problems. And so there's another way of speaking, when there's 
no birth, then there is eternal life. When, when there's no more birth, then there is eternal life. Not eternal self, just <laughs> eternal life. This kind of, these words are, are crazy, but that's how it is. You're very good at being born. Each day you get born hundreds, thousands of times. Notice that every birth is dukkha. Every birth is painful. So every time that with every birth, dukkha is born. But once there is no more birth, there is eternal life. This is absolutely crazy, right? Be very careful because there are two ways of speaking. The ordinary person speaks one way and the Buddhist speaks in another way. The worldly person speaks one way and the arahant, the awakened human being, the enlightened being, speaks in another way. The ordinary person feels experiences in their own way and speaks accordingly. But the arahant experiences things differently and so speaks differently. It's important to understand the difference and to not confuse the two ways of speaking. What is the nature of consciousness? First, we should make some understanding about the word consciousness, or in Pali, vijnana. In the Hindu, Hindu tradition, consciousness is considered to be eternal, or consciousness is identified as the self or the person. And so consciousness lasts forever. It's permanent. In Buddhism, however, consciousness is seen to only arise when the sense organ and sense object, the inner ayatana and external ayatana, interact. When, for example, the eye and a form interact, then eye consciousness arises, and then that eye consciousness ceases. And so in Buddhism, Consciousness is seen to arise dependent on the senses and cease. And so it's something momentary. It just comes and goes. And each one is a new consciousness coming and going momentarily. So which of these do you want us to speak about? The Hindu consciousness, which is eternal, which is identified with the self, or the Buddhist consciousness, which is momentary. Then there's an, another perspective which joins the two. This teaching says that there is a vijnana or a consciousness inside. And this, this is an eternal consciousness. But then it will go out to the eyes, to the ears, to the nose, to the tongue, and then come back. It goes out and comes back. So there are some who teach this way and they, they deceptively say that this is Buddhist, but this is not a Buddhist teaching. 
However, there are some people who claim it to be that there's some eternal consciousness that goes out to the senses. This, however, is not a proper Buddhist teaching. And then something amusing, those people who speak of consciousness as being eternal, they say that when one sleeps, that consciousness goes wandering around. And that what you dream is are the things that consciousness meets while it's traveling around. Once consciousness returns to the body, you wake up. If consciousness doesn't return, then the body has no chance to wake up and die. Now, this is another way of speaking about consciousness, but it is clearly not Buddhist. Although you'll meet Buddhists who will say such things, You'll meet people who say such things and claim it is Buddhism. It's not correct Buddhism. And then speaking specifically about Thailand, there are a lot of difficulties about consciousness because the Hindu teaching came here first. So the Hindu understanding of vijnana and things like rebirth came to Thailand first, and then Buddhism came later. And so then the two have been in conflict for hundreds, probably at least a thousand years. And this still is going on. There are many people who they claim to be Buddhists, but they have never actually listened to the Buddhist teaching on these things. They just stick to the old Hindu beliefs, which are also part of the ordinary culture. And so for the people who are not willing to learn, who, who don't try to understand the Buddhist perspective, they just stick with the old Hindu ideas of consciousness. And so this is still going on today. And to help so-called Buddhists understand the Buddhist teaching is still rather difficult because of these old beliefs. Instinctually, no we don't like to disappear. Instinctually, we prefer to exist, to live. So that means that we have an instinctual bias for rebirth or for any kinds of ideas or, or theories that ex explain how we can live forever. This, we have an, a bias for these things. So it's difficult for most people to understand non-birth. Most people are prejudiced for birth, 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 and rebirth, and so on. For example, the, in Egyptian culture, they have the mummies. When somebody's body dies, they embalm it and wrap it up and everything so that the spirit can come back sometime. Or that's only maybe four or five thousand years ago three, four thousand years ago, about ten, twenty thousand years ago, there is evidence that the Stone Age people believed in rebirth. Some of the skeletons that have been found have been found with artifacts, such as in one, a little ship was buried next to the body. Some, something like this ship, then the, the dead soul would would ride this ship to some other place, to some rebirth or some heaven or some afterlife. 
So even 20-something years ago, 20,000-something years ago, people, the Stone Agers, were believing in rebirth. To be born is positive. To non-birth sounds negative. And so everybody is biased for birth, rebirth. It's difficult for people to understand non-birth. We don't want to die. And so it's very easy to think about being reborn. Nobody wants to be dead, so we all easily think about rebirth. <clears throat> and so it's very easy for, very easy to get born. Animals don't have all these problems with birth and death like we do. Animals aren't afraid to die and so they don't spend all their time thinking about getting reborn. So they've got quite an advantage over us. They don't worry about these things. They don't create so many problems for themselves. Therefore, the rebirth worth paying attention to is the rebirth in dependent origination. The other kinds of rebirths are a waste of your time. They won't really help you very much. The rebirth that will be of value to you is the rebirth in the understanding of rebirth that will help you is the one in dependent origination where the first birth is you can first time you call it birth the next time you can call it rebirth and this can happen every hour or you can be reborn every five minutes depending on how much dependent origination there is if you understand rebirth in this way, it will have genuine value for you. If you understand dependent origination, you'll understand that there's nobody who is born and there's nobody who dies. There's nobody to be born, nobody to die. There's just the flow of dependent origination. So you ought to be very thankful to dependent origination because it frees you from all this worry and trouble of being born and dying, being born and dying over and over again. <clears throat> if you practice anaspanasati to the end, then you will be freed of this birthing and dying. You won't have any more problems with this birth and death because if one follows anapanasati, to the end, then there's no more person, no more individual, no more self to go through all this birth and death. To be independent from birth and death is the highest freedom. What organ experiences the mind or other sense organs? The question was, what organ experiences the mind and the other sense organs? Actually, the question is not phrased correctly because the sense organs or the ayatana do not experience things. The word ayatana, which we translate as sense or sense organ here, means things which can be experienced. It means experienceable, things which the mind can experience. So
So you would, we do not speak of an ayatana which experiences the mind. It's the mind which experiences the ayatana. There are the inner ayatana and there are the outer ayatana. And all of these are things which can be experienced by the mind. If the mind experiences them correctly, wisely, then there is no dukkha. If the mind experiences them foolishly, with attachment, then there is, there is dukkha. So understand that ayatana or the senses mean things that can be experienced. For example, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind sense are things, or mind, are things which can be experienced. And the same with form, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts. These can be experienced. Further, the certain very refined objects of concentration in where the mind is totally one-pointed on a very refined object, on a mental object. These are called the, the rupa jhanas, the arupa jhanas, or the samapatis. These very refined, where the mind is totally concentrated inter, inwardly on a, on a very refined object. These are called also ayatana. These are things which the mind can experience these so-called very refined states of consciousness. And further, Nibbana is an ayatana. Nibbana, the highest thing, <coughs> can be experienced. It's not some metaphysical abstract. Nibbana is something that can be actually experienced by the mind. So ayatana means experienceable or things which can be experienced. No. You could also translate it sensible, <coughs> things which can be sensed, things which can be experienced. To speak a little more narrowly, we can say it means things which can communicate or can be communicated with, things that can be um, known, things that can be experienced. If all or the majority of human beings became cool and calm, aware of the impermanence of all things and of their place in the law of nature, what effect would this have on all the other kingdoms of life? What do you mean by other kingdoms of life? It's hard to translate. Plants and animals, okay. If human beings truly understand impermanence and the law of nature, then the result of that will be Nibbana. Human beings will realize Nibbana, which means they'll be cool. They'll be cool, there'll be no more dukkha. Now another meaning of Nibbana is non-violence or non-harming, non-oppression. If human beings are truly cool, the effect of this is that 
they do no harm. They don't oppress or exploit plants, other animals, people, or even material things like rocks and benches and things. So if from understanding the law of nature, human beings are truly cooled, then they do not do any harm to anything. And the meaning of and that is the meaning of peace or santi, which is another synonym for nibbana, the the highest peace or the supreme peace. When one is quenched, when one is cool, one doesn't harm oneself anymore. And when one is cool, one doesn't harm others. Okay, so not harming oneself, one is cool. Not harming others, they are cool. And so both sides are cool, are quenched. Whenever atta or self is born, then things get hot. When atta is born, the heat, the fire starts. Sometimes it's a wet kind of fire. Other times it's a very dry kind of fire. Sometimes it's a fire which is white darkness. There are different kinds of fire, but it's all fire and fire burns. When there's no self, there's no fire, there's nothing burning. When one is cool, one is at peace. And then one doesn't do any harm for others. And so this is both peaceful and useful. When one is truly cool, one is totally at peace, and one's life then can be the most useful for others. So Nibbana is both peaceful and useful. <clears throat> so time is just about run out. In closing, we'd like to encourage you to learn to make more and more use of the world of 5 a.m. To, although the retreat will be ending, please continue to explore this world of 5 a.m. when your teacups are not yet overflowing. And learn how to do without a doer. Start, please explore more and more deeply what it is to do without a doer. And finally, we would like to thank you all for, for being good listeners one more time, and even more to thank you for making Suan Mok a useful place. You don't have to thank us for anything, but we would like to thank you because if you didn't come here, then Suan Mok would not be of any use. But your coming here makes Suan Mok beneficial. <coughs> and so we thank you for making Suan Mok a useful place. That's all for today's question session. <coughs>